All right. Test. That's right. You want to let, let go of that pew back? That's good. I like to see that now. I'm feeling feel like we got some real listeners tonight. Sitting on the front row. Y'all getting 3D. 3D Technicolor tonight. All right. Let's start with prayer, and then we'll climb in to the Word. You go ahead and turn to Genesis eight or Genesis twenty. We're beyond eighteen. Genesis twenty. Am I loud enough back there? Yeah. Okay. Actually, we're going to finish up nineteen too. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'll bless our time together tonight, that you'll just open our eyes to the riches of the gospel, that we'll just see your redemptive pattern all over uh, this uh, chapter 20 and even the end of chapter 19, that we'll see grace in action, mercy in action, that we'll see our frailties in action too, and uh, that we'll have a more informed, uh, robust view of our position relative to you, and that we'll have a, a better appreciation for the gospel and for your mercy and your grace, and um, that we'll adore our Christ more. Uh, we just turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to finish up chapter 19 tonight, and then I think we're going to capture chapter 20 in one sitting, so we'll see. We'll see what unfolds. Let's pick up in uh, chapter 19, verse... Um, 30. Sodom has been destroyed. <clears throat> I'll th- tell you what I'll do just to go back for the sake of context, starting verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. This is the little city that he begged to go to, the little wee city that, it's a wee one. Maybe the sin won't be as bad because it's wee. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. That just picture of that Sodom became the offering. All of Sodom is uh, it's a word that we looked at when we were back in Leviticus. was sublimated, you know, where something changes from a, a solid to a gas. <laughs> because it's burnt, that's what happened to Sodom, and it almost became an offering in his nostrils. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. (coughs) Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. 
and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. All right, let's pick up in verse 30. We're going to have a little bit lighter treatment of these things just because we don't need to really low crawl, but we are going to pick up a few nuggets. Uh, beginning in verse 30. Now when Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now, we can only speculate, but it's worth asking the question. Why do you think he didn't want to live in Zor? That, I think that, that's bound to be part of it. Well, you see a whole city destroyed, and you see your wife turn into a pillar of salt, where you just the fear of the Lord just overcomes you, overwhelms you. Why else? I think he may have visited Zor. Maybe he'd heard about Zor, and he actually goes to Zor, and he checks it out, and he's like, yeah, it's a wee one, but <laughs> it's a lot like Sodom. And connecting those two dots, I saw what happened in Sodom. I don't want to be in Zor if that happens here. I mean, we can only speculate, but anyway, he bails out of Zor. In the verse 31, and, and he goes to live in a cave with his two daughters. Not exactly the high life. And the firstborn said to the younger, and what you're going to see unfold here in a minute is that you're going to see sin loves company. Right? Let, let me see. I don't want to do this by myself. Let me see if I can bring somebody else in on this. Let me get my sis to participate too. Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. The daughters conspire to be like the manner of all the earth. Now, what I want to do is I want us to retranslate that last phrase. How would you all retranslate that last phrase? Just to put in your own words. The manner of all the earth. That's good. We can, yeah, what version is that? Yeah, what version are you reading? Okay. All right. Does anybody have NAS? Okay, so it's very similar to ESV. Put it in your own terms. Uh, I'm going to read the passage again and just try and, just like you're explaining it to your kids. And the, well, see, this is a very complicated thing to explain to your kids, but <laughs> rephrase that. Try to explain to a friend, a peer. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. That last phrase. That's just like the Joneses. The Joneses have babies. They got kids. They did it that way, and we don't have the means except for our old daddy. We want to do it like everybody else has done it. We want to do it like the Jones have done it. We want to do it like all those cool people have done it on TV or in the magazines or the people that are popular. See, what these, basically these ladies, these sisters, are driven by what they think is right in their own eyes, but it's defined by what they see in the world. They're using the world to educate them on what they think is right and cool and good. And their eyes are the instrument for where they're defining that. They're looking around at the world and seeing how things work, and they're fashioning, in many ways, fashioning their own destiny. What's that common poem or that poem that we give? It's not a common poem, but we give it to graduates commonly. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Oftentimes, graduates from high school or college, 
Anybody know the title of it? Two words. My. Did nobody else get this poem when you graduated? <laughs> Did anybody else graduate? That's the question. <laughs> my captain. Have y'all ever heard that poem? Captain of my soul. You know, I'm, I'm charting my own course and I can make my way. And you know, there's a, there's a um, uh, Dr. Seuss version of it. It's, it's really, it's not even related at all, but the Dr. Seuss story is kind of the same way where we chart your own course, and that's essentially what these, these sisters are kind of going after. Let me show you a couple of uh, other pictures of that. What are y'all saying back there? Yeah, the places you'll go. There you go. I knew that somebody, but this, my captain, does anybody remember that poem? No? Am I the, did I make that up? I may have just made that up. I could have done that. Uh, flip over to Isaiah chapter 5. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 5 is leading into Isaiah chapter 6, which makes sense, specifically where he sees the vision of the Lord in the temple, the throne room or the temple vision. And basically, the, the, the context here is this whole chapter 5 is woe to this. Here's what I'm seeing in Israel, and here's what's going to happen. Woe, woe, woe. And one of those woes is in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. A- an illustration, if, if I was preaching that passage, I could turn right over to Genesis chapter, chapter 19 and show the two sisters. They're wise in their own eyes. They're shrewd in their own eyes. I got a good plan. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's go in and lay with Dad. Crazy. Now, flip over to 1 John chapter 2, right in front of, uh, not right in front of, but very close to in front of Revelation, toward the end. Here's another picture of it. This is, if, <coughs> if you ever want, you know, just, this would be just a really good shepherd's verse for, you know, like for this week, I didn't prepare a shepherd's guide. You know, you guys don't have to be like dead in the water. When that happens, I guess I can't teach my children this week. <laughs> you just shouldn't be there. You say, okay, well, Ben didn't provide a shepherd guide. I guess I'll just have to maybe just read the word or maybe just see where the Lord leads me on that. Um, but here's a great place to have as kind of a, if Ben doesn't provide a shepherd's guide sort of passage to teach your family. This is the ways of the world. If you want to say, okay, kids, here's how the world works. You turn to First John chapter 2, verse 15. Really 16, but 15 for context. You could say kids, or you could say friends, or you could say wife or husband, or I could say to, to the people at Crosspoint, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the manner of all the earth. Folks, <laughs> sisters, I mean, that, let's import the context of what we're reading over there in chapter 19 of Genesis. Do not love the manner of all the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. If you want to characterize what world life is about, you know, you go on a trip to Germany. I don't know why I always choose Germany. You go on a trip somewhere, and you come back and say, hey, man, what was it like? 
You know, you're going to pull out some pictures and you might give them a little brief description. If we go someplace other than the world and somebody says, hey man, what's the world like? Let me turn to 1 John chapter 2 and this passage right here. Here's what the world is like. Here's how the world operates by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. And what do we see at work here in the two sisters? It's one of these three. Really, it's two of these three. What are they? Yeah, desires of the eyes and desires of the... Look, we don't, it's not working for us like it is for everybody else. So I desire to make it happen. So that's what's at work in these two sisters. Basically, the little side lesson there for us as we consider how these two... You can turn back to Genesis. How these two sisters have worked is that our sight... And our direction, what fuels the people of God is not the lust of the eyes. I think the New American Standard says lust of the eyes, doesn't it? And the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. That's the way I learned it in NAS. You don't have that memorized, Mike? Okay, man. <laughs> lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. That's the world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. But the people of God don't operate that way. But the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Our sight and direction and definition of what's right and good comes from God, not from all manner of the earth. Well, the Joneses do it that way. See, I need to pick a different example because just, it just connected with Bud and Jill sitting back there. Man, the, the Smiths. Let's pick on the Smiths. <laughs> Let's pick on the Smiths. Our sight and our direction come from a different resource. Where do we get that direction? Does anybody have any dreams where God is saying, Okay, they'll go do this. Kind of hesitant to ask that question. So I'm like, yeah, God told me last night. <laughs> Does anybody have any visions? Anybody had any theophanies lately where God showed up and said, okay, here's what I want you to do? So how do we, how do the people of God get our sight and direction? Right here. It's an obvious thing, but sometimes we have to be reminded of it. This is what defines what's good and what's right. Not the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But this thing right here. Now, what happens if the manner of all the earth defines our ways? We'll find ourselves living with the fruit of wickedness in a cave. You know, symbolically, sp- metaphorically, spiritually. Cave living is not so great. It's cold, damp, and kind of barren. Okay, verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He, he did not know that she lay down or when she rose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, which is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now the product of their sin, these two sisters, is two boys who end up fathering the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now just a quiz. Does Israel get along with the Moabites and the Ammonites? They're not pals. 
they're not buddies. Things are not good between the Moabites, the Ammonites, and Israel for years to come. Now, just a little side note. You know, we want to take a little, we're about to go to chapter 20, but I want to give you, anytime we have a little gospel snapshot, let's enjoy it. So here's a little gospel snapshot. We're going to see a gospel video in chapter 20. But here's a gospel snapshot. God shows yet again his redemptive pattern of choosing the foolish things to confound the wise, for from the Moabites will come who? Ruth. And from Ruth eventually comes who? Christ. <laughs> Yet again, the, he takes the foolish things to confound the wise. And then even her as an example. Despite her blood relationship to the fallen Moabites, she through faith will be reckoned among the tribe of Judah. She'll be reckoned to be among God's people. Sound like the gospel? A little snapshot of the gospel? Ding! There was. Okay. Now, chapter 20. Before I read chapter 20, let me give you a couple intro thoughts, and then we'll come back and pick it up. First of all, what you're going to see in chapter 20 is you're going to see that God is faithful even when his covenant partners are not. That's why this chapter should really be cherished by Crosspoint Fellowship. <laughs> Anybody that's ever failed the living God in any way should really love this chapter. It's an encouragement. The second thing you're going to see is you're going to see if, if the first issue is Godward, that God is faithful even when covenant partners are not. The second thing you're going to see in the man direction is that um, you're going to see a faithful man in an unfaithful season. And it, it should make, I think, hopefully, make for kind of a lower view of man just in general and a higher view of God between the two of those. We're going to discuss more at the end of the study tonight how God even uses our sin and our frailties for his glory. That may sound familiar from Sunday, if you guys were tuned in. But we'll go there too. Now chapter 20, I'll read together and then we'll come back and pick it up. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say, himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you've that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are, her, who are yours. And then verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants <coughs> and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought. <laughs> you can just stop right there. I did it because I thought. Okay, mistake number one, Abraham. There's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. 
Besides, she, she, is, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he's my brother. Sounded like he already kind of rehearsed that, you know. He had his answer already wrote. Well, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given you, your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Okay, let's go back and capture some of these nuggets. Verse 1 and 2. Do y'all, you know, sometimes I wonder, you might think it's redundant for us to go read all the way through and then pick up. You need big, big sweeping picture. And it's, it's repetition that where good study comes from. So if you think, man, why does he do that? I'm going to continue doing that. That's where good study comes from. So, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Okay, <clears throat> let's see how well we know Abraham after walking with him for a few I don't know, 15 years, 20 years, something like that, we've been walking with him now. Maybe a little bit more than that. I had lose track of my, my um, chronology there. But let's see how well we know him. Why do you think Abraham says Sarah is his sister? What, what comes to mind? If you were Abraham, why would you say that? Yeah, he's scared. I mean, does anybody want to die? you got to climb into this story and get to know this guy just like he's maybe kind of like you. He's made of the same thing that you and I are made of. He is just as human as we are. Does anybody want to die? Yeah, I'd like to get killed by some foreign kings. It's just, you know, you can under, you got to climb into the story and then you'll begin to understand what he's thinking and why he's thinking and then we can walk away with the faith lesson. But here's a couple of clues. In verse 11, he says, when Abimelech asked him why he did it, he said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. He's scared that he's going to die. Okay, so it's fear that drives him. Now, let's really address what he's fearing here. What is he fearing most in this chapter? Man, who said that? Good, that's a good answer. Very, I mean, I was just spot on. Because it, it matters where we figure out what he's fearing. He's fearing man more than he's fearing the Lord. Who should we fear? Sunday school answer. God, yeah, that's okay. Let's, let's give the Sunday school answer as, uh, as a, a statement of worship. We should fear the Lord. Now, here's a question for you. How should we fear the Lord? How, do we, how is fear of the Lord fostered in our lives? Faith? Okay. Okay. All right. In uh, Build on that a little bit, Bob. Uh, just. Okay. Okay. Why, 
Bob's choice of the word walk is really a good picture of this thing that the fear of the Lord is born out in the dailiness of life. But there's, there's a specific instrument that I'm, I'm thinking of that may also be a Sunday school answer that God uses especially as we're walking through this day and through this week and through this life. What is that instrument that helps that gives us a fear of the Lord? Sin does too. Yeah, you're right. God uses sin to do that too. You guys are giving great answers. Obedience? Obedience? Yeah, that's that's right along where Bob was talking about. Yeah, that's I you know, I, I'm just so, so word centric personally. I haven't always been that way. You can ask Christy. For years, I taught Bible studies that were more topical. You know, let's figure out where people's needs are, and then let's go see what the Bible has to say about those needs. And God used those, thankfully. But then I saw a difference, in, even in my own life, when we just went to the Word as, okay, I'm going to put my needs aside, go to the Word and just eat it, and let God define and shed light on what my needs are. Because my perceived needs may not match up with what my real needs are. So what, when, when I'm saying word-centric, that for me, where the fear of the Lord has come from, it's come from sin, it's come from circumstance, it's come from a pursuit of obedience and then failing, and just this recognition that I need Him. But really, behind all of those things, where real fear of the Lord has come from, for me, has been from seeing Him in motion in the pages of my Bible. And I made just kind of a little capture a few of these things. The fear of the Lord has come from traveling with the spoken word as it hangs the farthest star when God says, let there be light, or let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Traveling, actually climbing into that and imagining this creation spoken into existence. If we don't read these pages, we don't go on that journey with the farthest star as it's cast. The fear of the Lord has come from watching the oceans boil and watching them team with life at the mere mention, let there be. Team. I mean, countless creatures and whales and everything in between. The fear of the Lord has come from climbing on the ark with Noah and his family and hearing the screams of those who once mocked you and your God. The fear of the Lord comes from burning up with Nadab and Abihu. Does anybody remember who Nadab and Abihu are? little quiz anybody know who they are yeah what'd they do they offered strange fire they went freestyle on worship they went their own way i think we'll maybe i know the leviticus god said to do this but let's go freestyle let's offer it up our own way they became the sacrifice that's where the fear lord comes from for me where i think about yeah, i think i'll go freestyle and then i go hmm I hear Nadab and Abihu sizzling. I smell the, I can see them sublimated as they're disappearing in a little poof of smoke. The fear of the Lord comes from getting snake bitten with the grumbling Israelites and going, where is that golden bronze, bronze, excuse me, bronze snake? <laughs> I got to get my eyes on that thing or I'm dead. The fear of the Lord comes from getting stoned with Achan, getting swallowed up by the earth with Korah, it comes from quaking with Sinai, Mount Sinai, where just even a cow walks up to Sinai and he drops stone cold dead. That's where the fear of the Lord comes come from for me. 
from dropping dead with Uzzah. Do y'all remember who Uzzah is? What, what did Uzzah do? That's right. The ark is, you know, and he assumed that his hand was cleaner than the ground and dropped stone cold dead. <laughs> the, as the fear of the Lord comes from that where you go, you swallow hard and you go, whoa, God is holy. And he's big and he's awesome and he's mysterious and he's all these things all at once. The fear of the Lord comes from carrying the bodies of Ananias and Sapphira away. It comes from hearing the wind of the destroyer overhead at midnight with your loins girded and your herb roasted lamb in your belly. These are our escorts to the fear of the Lord. You know, as I think about Abraham, it's easy to sit back and be the critic. He didn't have those escorts. He didn't have any of them. <laughs> we have all of them. And more. That was just the, the escorts that I could think of off the top of my head that have been sweet escorts for me. He didn't have any of these. We should fear the one that has the authority to take not only take our life, but to take our soul. That's who we should fear. And in this case, Abraham's not fearing the Lord he's fearing man more so Abimelech takes her into his harem how old is she now they might have been keeping a little record of that they might have an estimate she's 90 something girl 90 something years old in the harem I just I just cannot believe this woman she must have really been something else in verse 3 but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she's a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? I hadn't even touched her. Did he not say himself to me, She's my sister? And she herself said, He's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will, he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all, you, and all who are hers. Excuse me, all who are yours. That's kind of a little tricky little passage there. Now I'm going to read this verse. I want you to look for two things that are true about the character of God that you see in one verse. God says... To him in a dream. He says, Abimelech, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. What two character traits of our God do we see demonstrated in that, in that passage? Okay? That's, th that would probably capture both of them, the ones that I'm thinking of. That's good. Definitely see sovereignty. What else? Omniscience, because he knows. He, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. I know that that was your motive. You weren't just off busy. <laughs> I know that why you haven't gone into hers because out of integrity that you haven't. I don't know what, what drove that, why it was integrity of his heart that he didn't do that yet. I don't know, but God knows. What's the other thing you see in motion? You see omniscience and you see something else, omni. Well, om, omniscience and om, omnipresence you can kind of put together. I'm looking for another omni omnipotence because he says omnipotence is omnipowerful all-powerful it was i who kept you from sinning against me i mean that that's an important question who kept abimelech from sinning sunday school answer 
God did. Let's embrace the Sunday school answer because we've got to know that. If you're in sin or you think that you can keep yourself from sin, we've got to see this connection and realize who keeps us from sin. God keeps us from sin. I mean, He is the source of any strength to withstand sin. So this is a cool picture of how we are to keep from sin. While we know that God doesn't author sin, this is something else we see from this, while we know He doesn't author sin, it seems that just by the removal of His hand, He can allow us to err. But He stayed His hand. He kept His hand on Abimelech here and kept him from sinning. So this realization, as you see God going, okay, I I kept you from sin. It should make us pretty dependent on this God. If we want to keep from sin, if we want to have marriages that last, that are rich and wholesome, we want to have families that are blessed, we've got to be a needy bunch, don't we? I mean, do we need God today? Yeah. Do we need Him tomorrow? Yeah. There's not a day that goes by or an hour that goes by where we don't need Him to keep from sin. It's not something that we can grit our teeth, set your face like flint, and prevent. If anything, we grip our hands around him saying, Lord, I need you. Keep me from sin. In fact, keep me from temptation. Does that sound familiar? Okay. This is the first reference in our Bibles right here to someone being a prophet. So Abraham was our first, at least officially designated prophet. Two things that he does here in this passage that I'll I'll read, and then you can just share with me the two two roles that you see of a prophet It says, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are are yours. What are the two things, the two roles of the prophet that you see right there in Abraham? What's the first one? Prayer. Okay, the other one is a little bit more discreet because he doesn't really do a great job of it here. He mediates the truth so that someone lives. In many ways, teaching and preaching, that's that teachers and preachers, shepherds, hopefully the elder role, if someone were to define an elder role, is to pray for the people and to mediate the truth. What did John do when he wrote the book of John? I've written these things so that you may believe that he is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. He mediated the truth. He served in many ways as a prophet-like role in just communicating the book of John to us. And that's what Abraham has done here. Okay, in chapter 20, verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. This is Abimelech's court. Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. Now this, as I was hearing those words from this guy, who is a God-fearer, but he's not one of God's people that's, that necessarily this, this redemption story is unfolding in. He's sort of a peripheral figure. Abraham's our central guy. Abimelech is not one of the chosen people necessarily. I don't want to get to the question of is he saved or not. I'm not dealing with that. I don't think he's one of this chosen elect people that God is going to create a whole new people through like who specifically I'm talking about, Abraham. But something that Abimelech demonstrates here is a great picture of Romans chapter 2. But when Gentiles who do not have the law, Abimelech didn't have a law yet. 
When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law unto themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness to the same. The fact that he had a sense right here where he said, you've done things to me that ought not to be done. A guy that really is going to die on the hill of evolution has got no explanation for why Abimelech has a sense of what ought to be done and what ought not to be done. You've got to appreciate little phrases like that in a guy that is not, I mean, he didn't, he didn't get that from some specific revelation from the Lord. This was written on his heart about what's right and what's not right. We've got to appreciate that God's given that to everybody. He's written the law on everybody's hearts, so they are without what? Excuse. Right. Okay, verse 10. <coughs> and Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, he's talking, okay, he's, he's sharing with Abimelech kind of this fictional little account with Sarah that's happened a number of times, apparently. Hey, Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. Every place we go, say of me you're, uh, that I'm your brother. He's conveying this to Abimelech. Now think about what we just heard from Abimelech, and I, I, want, I want you to answer the question. Who fears the Lord most in the way this story has unfolded? Abimelech. Now we've got to appreciate that. You've got to consider that. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men, him and all his court, are very much afraid. And then in verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. It's ironic that Abraham is fearful that there's no fear of the Lord in the place and yet he's the one demonstrating that he fears man more than God. Abimelech is a fearing God more than he is at this moment. And his explanation reveals, I think, that this may be kind of the sin that he's prone to. I think God has allowed us to be wired with frailties, and this seems to be one of his frailties. Everywhere he goes, hey, Sarah, you're such a hottie. Tell him you're my sis. Everywhere he goes, it was a pattern, and it was a tendency for him, apparently. And it also shows that this is the way we've always done it argument just doesn't hold water because that's what he's saying. Abimelech, uh, this is the way me and Sarah have always operated. So you got to understand, you got to appreciate. I mean, she's so cute. So this is the only way I've survived. So this is the way we've always done it. So that's that's why we did it this way. Yeah. I I didn't I didn't catch anything there. Like she asked him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. All right, verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. We're about to get to some really cool pictures of the gospel as we close out this chapter. 
And he gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone who you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to show you three pictures, three really, really important, sweet pictures of the gospel as you're, we're hitting this from three different directions. The first direction has to do with Abimelech's handling of Abraham and Sarah. What he does with them is he lavishes all these gifts on them. Money, tons of money. It's hard to appreciate how much money is really lavished on him here. What does it say? Um, how much money? Well, it doesn't. A thousand pieces of silver. This is gobs of money in that time. And he lavishes this upon him. Look at, look at this verse in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. I want to make that word connection because I want to show you something that is just the sweetest picture of the gospel. And in the future, when I refer to this, I'm going to refer to it as the twofold nature of the gospel. The twofold nature of the gospel is this that God has not only saved us from hell, but that he has seated us in a place of honor. He's not only liberated us from death row, but he's taken us now to a place of honor. Okay, the twofold nature of the gospel, if you only have one half of it, then you're just kind of stuck in limbo. If you're on death row and you're liberated from death row, but you're not seated in the place of honor, then you're just kind of in limbo. Let me show you this. This is what I'm talking about over here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Listen to this picture, the twofold nature of the gospel. And you'll, see, you'll, you'll make this connection to Abimelech and how he handles it here in a moment. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In fact, any time you went to a foreign land, you told everybody that you were my sister. You told everybody that you were my sister. And you were by nature children of wrath, walking faithlessly. Now listen to what happens next. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and telling everybody that we were bro and sis. You understand this connection? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He made us alive and he raised us up. We've been saved from something bad for something good. And this picture of how Abimelech handles this deal with Sarah and Abraham is a visual. It's an illustration of that. Okay, I'm going to let you go, Abraham and Sarah. And not only that, I'm going to load up your mules with all the silver that they can carry. It's a picture of the gospel. The twofold nature of the gospel. If only our debt is removed, then we're just spared hell. 
Does anybody not want to go to hell? Man, I don't want to go to hell, but that's only half of it. We have to be forgiven, but then we have to be, here's a, here's a, a new word many of you may have heard, but it may be new for you, imputed with righteousness. You've got to be forgiven and imputed. If you're just forgiven, you're just in limbo. You're still not with God, and you will never be. You've got to be imputed with righteousness. Gold, silver, lavish grace heaped all over the mules. So this picture of how Abimelech handles this, it's an illustration of the gospel. We're not left simply not offensive. I know that's a double negative in there, but I couldn't figure out any other way to say it. We're not just left in the work of the cross simply non-offensive anymore. But in fact, the second fold of that twofold nature is that we are made and reckoned righteous. We are saved from something bad for something good. And Abimelech's letting them go and lavishing gifts on them is a great picture of what God has done and is doing for us. So if the nature of the gospel is twofold, that we are saved from, from something bad for something good, then the nature of our faith should be twofold. Remember the sermon a couple months ago where it was uh, God is the gospel? Where if, if all we have is the non-hell program, then I'm not even sure if that's faith or not, if that's saving faith. I'm glad it's not up to me. But I don't even know if that's saving faith because that's only one fold of the twofold nature of faith. If the gospel is twofold, that we're saved from something for something, then our faith should reflect that. That Yes, I'm thankful that I'm saved from hell. But man, I love that I'm saved for something. That I'm going to see my Jesus. I asked Daniel, our, our four-year-old, at the dinner table the other day. He said something about, what did he say? I want to eat a window. He was making up a song. I want to eat a window. I want to take a bath in the bird bath. And I want to go to heaven. And the big kids were just laughing. You know, Daniel's a clown. And I said, Daniel, you want to go to heaven? Why do you want to go to heaven? He said, to see God. And I just melted. Oh, thank you for not saying, because I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> Man, the twofold nature of the gospel should reflect the twofold nature of our faith. This was just a really cool picture, a visual, an illustration of the twofold nature of the gospel. Here's the second thing. We're going to hit it from a different angle. Also considering Abimelech. Consider how Abimelech interacts with Sarah specifically. Listen to these words from Abimelech to Sarah in verse 16. He says, Sarah, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. This money that I've given Abraham, Sarah, is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated, Sarah. I mean, you think about this. This guy, this foreign king, man, he is, he is honorable toward this woman, wouldn't you say? The question is, who deals more righteously with Sarah? Abimelech or Abraham? Abimelech does. And God blesses him in this by keeping him from sin. But I want to take you back to the picture of election. Who is God's elect covenant partner? Abraham. Now, let me throw this question in there. If election were based on performance, who would get it? Abimelech. <laughs> right? He's more honorable. I mean, if we're just going to look in this snapshot. If it were performance-based, I'm going to say Abimelech is, is being more honorable toward this woman 
than her own husband is. But thankfully, election is not, nor will it ever be based on performance. In fact, God has a pattern of choosing the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's done it all over our Bible. Tax collectors, fishermen, murderers, adulterers. He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. People that in trumpet election and come across as this haughty, um, check me out. And I, I would bet that a lot of these guys don't mean to do that. It's got to be in this tone that if anything, he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. In this picture, who's more foolish? I'm saying Abraham's more foolish. Yet that's God's covenant partner. Israel showed time and time again. They were his chosen people. Was it because of anything special about Israel? <laughs> no. They were many in number. They were whores. That's not my word. That's the Bible word. Man, God is, boy, he is, he's up to something, but what is he up to when he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? What's it about? What's going to be exposed there when something's really awesome? Who's going to get the glory? God. And what shows up when he picks the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? What shows, what comes into view that's in focus that you can't see otherwise? If he picks the coolest, smartest, brightest, finest, most honorable, most dandy, most handsome, I mean, what, what, what's lost and diminished if he operates that way? I'm, I'm looking for a word that also starts with G, but it's grace. Man, grace shows up when you see him electing a um, Jacob. If election were based on performance, I'd go with Esau. He's a hardworking man, red-haired guy. He's out earning his chow, working hard for the family. Jacob's the little cheat, liar. Man, God, God's ways are different. And why is he doing that? To bring grace in view. And what, what I realize more and more, the more I study, is that that's what he's doing with us. Let me show you this in this last point. Abraham's faithless actions here in chapter 20 should make us enjoy God more. It shouldn't make us, well, actually it will make us go, huh, Abraham. If all we had was chapter 11 of Hebrews, I'd have a picture of Abraham on my wall. I wouldn't know what he'd look like, but I could make it up, you know. The man, I'd have right underneath it, the man, if that's all I had. But I've got these chapters over here that make me say, not the man, but a man that God used as an instrument of grace and mercy. This guy has shown himself to be such a faith stud yet here in this chapter and in a previous chapter he steps well outside of faith in god and is driven by the fear of man over the fear of god and here are some things that he demonstrates here's just a few passages turn to second timothy chapter two seeing these passages through the lens of chapter 20 i'm telling you will just make the gospel come alive for you and they'll make you adore our shared lord so much more and they'll also make for a really low view of yourself and I don't mean like a, woe is me, I'm so yucky. I don't mean that. I mean, humility comes from an accurate view of yourself in line with a view of God's glory and grace and mercy. So this, what this does is to, another twofold thing, is it's showing us His glory and His grace in, the, in that lens, through that lens of our dirty feet. And we're just seeing it vicariously through Abraham. We're climbing in the pages 
and climbing into the story, and we're developing a fear of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. If Abraham, even the hero of the faith, is faithless, God remains faithful. Turn over a couple pages to Titus, chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Because all it takes is one work of unrighteousness to disqualify all the rest of it, doesn't it? If you fail in one part of the law, you failed in all of it. And what are the, what are the consequences of sin? The wages of sin is what? Is what? Death. Okay, here's another picture. Romans chapter 3. This is... I, listen, I, if you hung in here tonight, hang in here for these last couple of verses. Because when these things come into view, I mean, you're talking about treasure tonight. Romans chapter 3. Three passages I want to share with you last. And here's the first of the three. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Paul is dealing with these guys that are kind of wrestling with, well, how come all the Jews didn't see Christ as Savior and Lord? Just like what we talked about on Sunday. This kind of diminishes the faith for me, potentially. And he's saying, man, don't let it go there. He says, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. You remember the translation there is, not in a million years. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let God be true, though everyone had Genesis chapter 20. Let God be true, though Abraham had chapter 20, and then chapter 20, and then chapter 20, and, and never had chapter 21 or chapter 22. Let God be true. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Y'all remember from Sunday where that came from? little quiz to see how ten of y'all are. That little section, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged? You probably have a little note in your Bible, Pete, down there. Psalm chapter 51. What is Psalm 51? What did David just do? He's a murderer and an adulterer. And he says, in some weird way, my sin is serving to justify you and your words and that you will prevail when you are judged. In some weird way, my sin is bringing into focus grace. My sin is bringing into focus my lowliness that I was conceived in iniquity and born in sin and your incredible, shocking, scandalous grace and mercy. And it's through his sin that's bringing that into focus. Now we know that while God did not author that sin, God is in the business to turn limits to lemonade. So he's turning that sin into, here's an opportunity for God's glory to show grace and mercy on display. Crazy awesome. So when we see chapter 20, we should go, oh, thank God for grace and mercy. And then here's the last passage, 2 Corinthians. This has just been like where I want to live lately. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 these couple of verses, just, I just want to just gnaw on this just day and night. Not day and night, because I do want to sleep. But this is something that I really, really, I can't get away from this passage. Verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, this same God that, said, that spoke and the farthest star went, whoosh, the same God that spoke and the sun went, whoosh, 
Now, those were even after he made light. There were a couple days of light just to show that he's the source of light, not the sun or the stars or the moon. But this same God that spoke and said, let there be light, and what did light do? It obeyed. Yes, sir. Is the very same God that has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where I would, I'm telling you, the more and more you, you tune in to God's complete sovereignty and the work of election, you realize that we cannot even go to him unless that he arrests us. The same God that spoke and said, let there be light, is the same God that with the same sort of power spoke into our lives and said, let there be light. The knowledge of, or the glory of God in the face of my son. It's effectual. He doesn't shine light on some and they say, nah, I don't think so. Any more than he would say, let there be light, and the son would say, nah. And this incredible work of effectual call, that's the treasure that he's referring to in the next verse. He says, we have this treasure, this treasure of this effectual call of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is in jars of clay, what is clay? Do you have anything in your house that's made of clay? Pot. You go to these archaeological digs, and what do they do? They dig up little bitty shards of what? Clay. And they're shards, why? Because they're fragile. <laughs> and they're everywhere. Why are they everywhere at these dig sites? Because they're what? They're broken, yeah, because they're fragile. What else? Because they're common. So God has chosen common, fragile things to walk around carrying the treasure of the gospel. Clay pot, clay pot, clay pot, fractured, broken, often. What this ought to do for us is make us embrace the gospel more. And it's realized that it's in the backdrop of man's failings that God is glorified all the more as gracious, all the more as merciful, faithful, long-suffering. And while we should never see this as license to sin, oh, I'm just a clay pot, <laughs> there I go again, or I'm clay, so I'm going to go ahead and sin anyway because I know God's in the business of turning limits to limits. It should never be licensed to sin, but we must see this as gospel clinging, that we're just a bunch of clay pots, and we need to cling to the cross, and we need to cling to Christ. And we should never view these failings of this Abraham as those guys. We should view it as us guys. His chapter 20 is my chapter 20. Aiken's taking the devoted things and hiding them and digging a hole in his tent. That's my taking the devoted things. Let's be real honest. Man, those are my feelings too. One of the things that's, that's remarkable to me about this picture of Judas where we are this last week and where we're going the next couple weeks is that every one of the disciples came to Jesus when he said, one of you is going to betray me, every one of them. There's a verse that says one at a time they came to him and they asked this question. You know what they asked? Three words. Is it I? Is it I? As I climb into chapter 20 here in Genesis, I'm going, I could hopefully say that too. Who knows what I'm capable of? Man, there's no room for pride at the foot of this cross. There's no room for pride once you climbed into chapter 20 of Genesis to say those guys. This is our story. 
The thought, oh, I would never say you're my sister. Maybe not. We have another version of the same thing. Another line of the same song. Because we're made of the same stuff. This guy's failings, Abraham, I'll just leave you with this thought. His failings here make me realize just how fragile he was. He wasn't superhuman any more than you are or I am. He wasn't superhuman. He was a clay vessel carrying treasure. And I imagine that when he fought the kings a few chapters earlier, that maybe he was fearful. I imagine that when he let Lot choose first, that something men him kind of wanted to choose first. Imagine that whenever he saw Lot choose Sodom, that he thought something in him thought, man, that sure does look lush. How sweet would that be? Imagine that when he hosted the, the three visitors in the chapter earlier, there may have been something in him that it was just a little bit put out with the guests. But that in every one of those cases, that faith won out. That there was a little bit more faith than his very real humanity. And that faith won out. And here's a chapter, along with a few chapters earlier, where faith didn't win out. But thankfully, we serve a merciful, gracious, long-suffering, patient, good God. That just like He gave Abraham chapters 21 and 22, that we've got to give each other grace and mercy to hope for chapter 21 and 22 in each other. If between any of us, it ends... If I give you a chapter 21 and I really mess up in how I've said something or how I've handled something and you're done with me, then you've closed the book on me. And you didn't give me a chance for chapter 21 or 22. And you can do that to yourself too. I'm done with this. I just had a chapter 20. I'm out of here. We've got to realize that we serve a merciful, graceful, patient, long-suffering God. We've got to bathe in that mercy and grace. Because there's tomorrow. Because <laughs> we'll have our chapter 20 before bedtime, if you're like me. Man, when the gospel shows up in this Old Testament, it just ought to be treasured. Here's some announcements I'll leave you with, and I'll pray. There's no Bible study next Wednesday night in here. No Bible study. And then the Wednesday night after that, we're actually, and, and that's because of Memorial Day, and really just because kind of our workers... And me, you know, it, it's good for people to just have a break. Spend time with family, spend time with neighbors, friends. And, uh, man, this is good medicine for me. I hope it is for y'all. But we can also be really intentional about engaging our families and taking time to kind of catch our breath. So next Wednesday will be that for us. So I encourage you, if you, if you don't have plans next Wednesday night, you'd plan to come to this, then maybe talk with somebody else in here tonight and say, hey, let's have dinner next Wednesday night. Or maybe turn husband and wife and say, let's do something cool with the family next Wednesday night. But be really intentional about making, making that matter. And then the Wednesday night after that, we're going to try and really be intentional about, about kind of saturating our neighborhoods and passing out some of these flyers about our family clubs. The, I'll share some of this on Sunday morning, but our family clubs is really just kind of a, it's kind of in keeping with our Dib series we're, the backyard Bible club wasn't broken, and it's not going away. It's just this summer we're doing something a little bit different. So 
you know, I know how much we love known places. And this is a little bit unknown, but be okay with that. This may, this may be an opportunity at the park to connect some people that may not show up to your house in a neighborhood. So um, it's going to be a little bit different. And I'll, I'll capture some of the differences there so you'll understand why we're doing what we're doing. But that next Wednesday um, after that, three Wednesdays from now, will actually be the middle of Family Club's week. Are you about to ask a question? Just yeah. Wow. Yeah, definitely. We'll pray for them in a moment. No, no, I appreciate you sharing that. This Sunday also, just another announcement, this Sunday we'll not have Bible study at 9, 9 a.m. Bible study. We're kind of set up for mobile worship. We're just not mobilizing this Sunday. So it's mobile worship minus mobilizing. So we'll have the same schedule of 1015 coffee and donuts, and then we'll have corporate worship in here. And we'll probably resume... Um, our, I'm sure we will, are mobilizing for corporate worship the once a month in the fall. But over the summer months, it's just kind of a good time for us to catch our breath corporately. Be real intentional about being excellent at it when it comes back. Uh, lastly, just take, well, two, two more things. Um, take a look at the Everything in Common section on our website. There's really some neat stuff listed on there. And as much as stuff, it's really just kind of cool people saying, hey, here's this is available for you corporately if anybody needs this. Clothing, kid clothing. Uh, there was a lawnmower on there that I think is gone. So, but if you've got something that someone else in the body might be able to use, then uh, be sure and post that. Uh, and lastly, the baby, baby bottles for the, the uh, crisis pregnancy, the woman's heart uh, clinic, uh, they're coming to pick them up next Tuesday. So y'all bring those on Sunday and turn those in on Sunday. Let's close in prayer. And what, what's the, the Stevie Joy? Okay. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for our time together tonight. We thank you for the gospel so sweetly and wonderfully illustrated. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. The, uh, the group of us tonight just are um, just in our hearts, uh, on our knees before you. Thanking you for the rich... Uh, sin-cleansing, detergent work of the cross. Um, We're thankful that your grace reaches really low. Lord, we pray that you will find us um, attentive, available, um, worshiping, amazed, savoring, clinging, needy, dependent clay vessels that are sticking close together, that are salty, bright, and aromatic when we're not together, but that are being built up and refilled and, and encouraged and equipped when we do gather. Lord, tonight, I just, on behalf of this people, I thank you so much for these sweet pictures of the gospel. Lord, also, tonight, we just want to uh, pray for this family, uh, for the Chapman family. Uh, Lord, we just pray that your grace will be on display through this somehow. We trust you. Uh, We know that nothing happens by accident, but that you are sovereign. And uh, we just pray for just a really keen, um, otherworldly peace right now for this family and um, an awareness of your presence and your sweet um, love for them. Lord, we just pray for brothers and sisters that are going to have to deal with this loss. And um, Lord, we just pray that you'll be glorified through it. We thank you in advance that you will be. And uh, we thank you that you're on your throne. 
Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for our shared Lord and for his ample blood and his cross that's so effectual for your call that's so powerful and mighty. Thankful that you'll lose none of your own and that you preserve us and hold us and keep us in the palm of your hand. Uh, Thank you for this time together tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all. I like having y'all sit up front. It's good.